Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Okay, today you have Daphne and Andrew from Generation to Generation, and our guest is Doug Stringer. Um, for those that don't know about you, Doug, can you just briefly say a bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Wow, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I live in Houston, Texas, as whenever I'm here, and uh, for the last nearly 40 years, I've been doing ministry, what we call Somebody Cares. We have chapters across the United States and around the world, and affiliates on every continent, and uh, primarily in areas of prayer initiatives and the presence of God, Compassion Coalition to being tangible expressions of Christ. And then thirdly, because of that, we were thrown into the last couple of decades into disaster relief because we have many people already in those areas that can give us real-time assessments. And we prefer working to and through local churches and organizations who know their communities. So when the media is gone and all the, uh, the big organizations are gone, we need to make sure we've leveraged and empowered and given equity to local ministries and churches who love their community. And because of that, we've had people from business leaders around the world. We were talking about Malaysia and prior to this podcast, so many good friends there. I've been going there back and forth for many years. And so we have business leaders, we have athletes, uh, political leaders that put aside their titles and we come together to talk about the importance of persevering, courageous leadership. Mm. And for people that want to find out about find out more about what you do um where can they um find out more information resources or that kind of stuff on the outreach arms of what we do they just go to somebodycares.org somebodycares.org if they want to get more in the area of where i'm saying and sharing things more prophetically on the edge uh really heart to heart it's dougstringer.com and because i want to make sure i separate those two one is somebody cares it's very tangible expressions of God's love in communities all over the world, disaster relief and so on. But the DougStringer.com is I'm able to share things like uh, it's time to put L back in Bethel, which is put God back in the church, or it's, uh, you know, talking about attracting God's presence and, and just speaking about uh, the importance of discernment, things like that, especially in the days we're living right now. So, and we also have links to my podcast that we do every week called The Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. Okay, and we'll put links to all of those in the description box as well so people can go and I recommend they do go check out some of your other stuff. Great. Mm. Right. Yeah, I certainly um, I'm checking with you at times when you're on and listening and I'm always challenged and blessed by it. So thank you. Thank you, Doug. Great. Actually, in fact, you, I think it was about 20 years ago or so that I attended a Somebody Cares in Houston and that was the first time I, I saw you. Wow. Wow. Can, you wow. can you remember what they spoke about? <laughs> no, but I do remember, I do remember having no money, nothing, and, and I was there and I'd just come on a faith walk and I was ministering in different places and I left the meeting, went outside for something and somebody placed a wad of notes in my hand. Wow. That I remember. So you've, if you've got that anointing, we'll be hanging around you a bit more. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> So, Doug, in these days that we're living in, could you share some things that God has put on your heart that will speak to people, bring them awareness, help them look at what's going forward? You emailed us some very profound things. So can you just share some of that with us and let's see where it goes to? Absolutely. You know, let me, let me start. And if it's OK to share something I felt was 
uh, something very significant for me in, in the middle of 2019. Um, I had to get up early in the morning for a meeting with some uh, local pastors. And so I put my earplugs in my, my ears the night before to get a good night's sleep. And as you know, uh, Daphne and, Kurt, uh, and Andrew, that I, I have two prayer times every morning. And it's not something I ask everybody else to do. It's just a personal preference. And my first prayer time is when I first wake up in the morning, uh, I, don't, I almost don't even open my eyes. I just begin to thank the Lord. I don't ask him for anything, no supplications. I just specifically just say, Lord, I just thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you for the joy of your salvation. I think of everything I can just to show an attitude of gratitude. And then I get up and I take my shower and brush my teeth and have my devotions. And before I ever leave my home or a hotel room or wherever I may be, I, I go and do my knee time. And my knee time is where I go to the side of the bed. I go to my knees. And that's where I give supplications, saying, God, I'm way beyond my pay grade. I, I don't even, all the demands on my life, I can't do this, but Lord, I know you can. And so I thank him for the, the privilege of his calling and I just lay out the day to him. But on my first prayer time that particular morning in uh, 2019, I remember laying there and just thanking the Lord, my eyes closed and I felt our dog jump up on the bed next to my leg and that's normal. And then I, I felt um, a presence and I thought it was my wife sitting next to me. I kept my eyes closed. And then I heard very distinctly in a loud voice, and it didn't sound like her voice, but I, I just assumed it was her, and I heard the word Zoe. Now, I know in proper uh, vernacular, it's Zoe, but as many people here in the U.S., they call it Zoe. So I heard it Zoe, and I thought my wife was trying to, you know, get me to get up because I had to hurry up and, and didn't realize I was still praying. And I looked up, and there was no dog and my wife wasn't there, but I felt a strong presence of the Lord. And so I recognized the Lord was saying something to me about Zoe or Zoe. And the next few days, I began to process and think about it. And I realized that when we think of the tree of life in Genesis, the tree of life in Revelation, it's the, it's the Zoe, it's the divine life, it's the divine presence of God, it's the tree of life. And I felt like the Lord was saying to me to begin to share and encourage people we're coming into a season to be careful and to be intentional to speak the Zoe or the Zoe of God, the life of God through the presence of God into our families, into our circumstances, into our communities, because things were going to be coming up into the future. We had to hold on to fixing our eyes on the tree of life, the Zoe of God, and not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because too often we get distracted in circumstances. We begin to look at the tree of knowledge of good and evil as going to be the answer for our ills of the day, well, we cannot get off balance. We need to keep focused on the center of the garden for us as believers is on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the tree of life. I've seen through all that in these last uh, few months through COVID and other global challenges, many even Christians are beginning to look to the institutions or the knowledge of tree of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for hope and answers when their hope and answer will never come in any lasting way by looking at the institutions of men. We must be focused on the Lord, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I, I just wrote an article in our last magazine called The Centrality of the Cross. The only way we'll ever come into the place of reconciliation, ethnically, ethnos, and, and in our nations, in this generation, crossing our racial, denominational, generational lines, is not the ways of the world, but on the centrality of the cross, the tree of life, to make sure that at that place, when Jesus is the center of our focus, 
And his presence, we come out of his presence, not according to division, but in the power of voice and music and worship and the glory of God. We need to become one blood from all nations, scripture says, so that we can become ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of Christ. That's we're, we're not of this world, but we live in it. But we are ambassadors of Christ in this world. And this is our moment. In fact, I think about Luke chapter 21, when it says that, that kingdom will come against kingdom, nation or ethnos against ethnos, race against race. That, that's a sign of the time, the, the end of the age. And we see all these things we've preached about in the past and pandemics and pestilence and earthquakes and fires and tornadoes and typhoons. All these things are not catch, catching God off guard. In fact, Luke 21 lays it all out. And we've talked about it, we've preached about it for decades, but the future is now. This is our moment. And Luke 21, verse 13, in the midst of all these things, and it also talks about the distress of nations that, and with perplexity and the men's hearts fail them out of fear. All those things are in Luke 21, but in the middle of it, Luke 21, verse 13, Jesus in his own words says to the church, but it shall be an occasion for your testimony. That's perspective. In the midst of all that's going on, fixing your eyes on the center of the garden, which is the tree of life, which is fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In the midst of that, we can take the word of our testimony and the blood and overcoming by the blood of the lamb in a world of chaos and anarchy and difficulty. And we can see God bring healing in the midst of such difficulty. In fact, the world will have race against We see racial tension in my own country. We're seeing it happen right now. Anarchy and anarchists and so many others. But if the church gets distracted by those, rather than taking opportunity in this moment to bring the presence of God, then we're not going to find any lasting reformation or change. Only way to bring lasting change from systemic issues, broken cisterns, is to come to the centrality of the cross and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Mm. And it is so easy to be distracted, to be distracted by fear, to Absolutely. be distracted by uncertainty uncertainty i think often knocks people off course because you suddenly have lost everything that is sure we, we were talking the other day and, and we did a podcast on living in the unshakable kingdom when the whole world is shaking and yeah what you're saying if we lose sight of jesus and if we don't want to lose sight of Jesus. He's the coming king. This, this is what it's all about. I, mean, I think yesterday I said, half, I said to somebody jokingly, I said, we're living through the days the prophets long to see. And then I said, the minute I feel they could be welcome to it. <laughs> but, but, but we are living in those days of expectation and we are living to see the coming king. So if we lose sight of him, what's it all about? And that's a great point you're talking about, you know, even what it says in Luke 21 about the men's hearts will fail them out of fear. And, and you were just talking about many are afraid and they're being distracted. Uh, you know, I was thinking about and I wrote recently about uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus. And uh, he lived through the, the desecration, destruction of the temple of Solomon's temple in 70 AD, as well as the diaspora, the dispersion and the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jews in 70 AD. And, uh, but he talked about what was going on. The climate of the day was social and political and spiritual unrest and divisiveness, where even families were strongly at argument with each other. They were in division with each other. So this mm -hmm. was the climate of the day so that when the Roman Empire came in, 
there, everything internally in, in Israel was already uh, topsy-turvy. And so in that context, we see an uncanny similarity today. If the church is not focused together, then the powers that be that would try to come and destroy the voice of the prophet, the voice of the truth, the voice of the gospel, the voice of the church, that if the church is imbalanced, how can we reach the soul of a community? I was sharing uh, earlier with some others, uh, a global uh, gathering with leaders, and I shared with them that years ago, I was asked by the late uh, Chuck Colson and Dr. Bill Bright uh, to be on a TV special. There was taping of two programs on the soul of America. And when I first sat on the set, I didn't say a word because I was listening to these great giants of the faith. And finally, uh, the producer puts up a sign that says, Doug, speak. And I said, you know, we're talking about the soul of a nation. But how can we reach the soul of a nation if the heart is weak or sick? I said, I believe the heart of every community, whatever city, whatever state, whatever nation, I believe that the heart should be the church. And if the church's heart is weak, we need a defibrillation. Because how can we reach the soul of a community if the heart is weak? And I said, it's time for a heart awakening, a, a corporate heart awakening, if we make any lasting change or reformation in our communities. And I realized, fast forward 20 years later, where we are today, that we're still trying to focus on the institutions of men and women rather than looking at uh, the kingdom of God. It's advancing the kingdom. But to do that, we have to get away from our typical ways of, of peddling the gospel, our egos and logos, our trying to build our own kingdoms. And uh, Daphne, of course, and, and Andrew, you know, I have a, a saying that I've quoted for decades uh, called, that says, while men reach for thrones to build their own kingdoms, Jesus reached for a towel to wash men's feet. If yeah. we can touch the heart of the community by being a tangible expression of Christ, then they're more open to receive the message that we want to bring. Too often we want to preach at the wind, but we don't have a tangible expression of the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 2.14 is a great picture that God always leads us to triumph and victory through Christ Jesus so that we can become dispensers or manifestors or sprayers of the presence of God, so to speak. And I see a picture of like when you have these, uh, these, these machines and you go to restrooms or you go to restaurants and every few minutes it goes, and it, it, just, it just sprays out this sweet smell. It, it's put in places that potentially can become stinky. We are to be those sprayers in a stinky world. We, and to do that, we have to be in the presence of God, not, not just an invitation for a, a, for, a, for a visitation. No, we need a habitation of the presence of God mm. that comes from being in the holy place of God. Yeah, um, you know, I used to walk past those sprays, and if it sprayed when I walked past, I would take that personally. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're so right. And uh, you look at persecuted countries, and the church rises up, and God does unbelievable things, moves of God in these persecuted countries in Iran, one of the fastest growing churches in the world. And one of the things that we've appreciated during these last few months, especially in the West, is seeing those churches rising up in the midst of this and we've got some here in the uk that are taking it from the building because we can't meet in our buildings they're saying okay fine we're taking this to the streets and they're out on the streets or in the towns they're in uh supermarket parking lots uh, we're starting to see that in the us of churches doing similar things seeing it across california um with people doing it out there and one of the things i find interesting is is the voices that are not speaking up um, it's been very interesting to see, 
but also the voices that are, the pastors that are, and how even we might all stand on very different sides of the scale on theology um, and have very uh, passionate debates about some of that stuff. We, there's a growing appreciation for those other people because they are standing together during these times. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that uh, that's exactly what I've been thinking, too, because when, you know, when we look at a common um, enemy, so to speak, then we tend to, to not be so uh, divisive with each other. And if we recognize there is a spiritual battle going on and a spiritual battle that rages for a generation, as you have been so faithfully reaching, you've been in, in really working on this next-gen movement of that, this multi-generational move of God, and you've been faithful to that. And thank God for that. And I appreciate that because it encourages people like me. I remember when Leonard Ravenhill, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, reached out to me and became like a spiritual grandfather and said, I've been praying for your generation. And I literally would be in different countries and I'd call or check on him. And he said, I was just praying for you. Well, I'm that person now. I'm in my 60s now. And I've been praying the same way he prayed for my generation. I've been praying for the next generation, for this multi-generation release to empower the next generation to, to lead us in that place of, of coming out of the desert, crossing the Jordan River, possessing land of promise. And I'm praying that your generation would not leave the rest of us on the Transjordan side of the river, but take us with you. But I, I appreciate that, that you've been consistent about this multi-generational connection, but also recognizing taking the wisdom and, and the dreams of the older, connecting them to the passion and the zeal and, and the vision of the next generation. I, I love the way you continue to be consistent with that. That being said, uh, in 1990, I wrote a book that uh, Steve Hill, Michael Brown, and Ed Cole and others endorsed and Leonard Ravenhill gave away cases of them at a time. And, um, and I, I was looking back over that again recently, just to kind of process, because I don't like the way I wrote back then, obviously, but just the, the content of the things that God was speaking to me. And I remember sharing something I learned from someone when I went to Vietnam in 1990. And he had shared with me, because I was there doing some humanitarian work and working with some Vietnam veterans who wanted to go back and do humanitarian work and find out uh, where their friends had been killed because they had survivor's guilt. And in the, in the process, I got to meet the underground church, as you were talking about underground churches. And I just saw the incredible wealth of passion and tenacity and resilience, even under persecution and poverty. But I learned this thing that in 2000 years, that the church has had to overcome at least three, maybe four things. Uh, the first thing the church has always had to overcome in 2,000 years is a place of persecution. When the church, though, has been under persecution, it tends to flourish. It grows anyway. It, you can't stop the gospel, like we see in Iran, as you mentioned, or Vietnam or China, uh, in North Korea and South Korea and other places. You see the church continues to flourish even in the midst of the most adverse situations. The second thing the church has had to overcome is the place of, of poverty. And yet, even where there has been impoverishment, the church seems to flourish, and God allows there to be a shift where the resources begin to be given to and through the church, not to hoard, but to be stewards of the resources of the kingdom to advance the kingdom. But the third and the fourth thing that the church has been, had to overcome in 2,000 years but has a difficulty with it is long periods of peace, 
and prosperity. Here's what happens. We have long periods of peace and prosperity. God's intention is for us to use our times of peace and prosperity to expand the kingdom, to share our faith, to be ambassadors of the cross and of the gospel, and to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. But too often, when we become self-absorbed, in fact, A.W. Tozer said that self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. Too often we become self-centered, self-absorbed, self-righteous when we begin to have long periods of peace and long periods of prosperity and we no longer steward it, we begin to hoard it and it become, we become selfish with that. It's in those places that the, that the Lord allows us to be shaken, to remind us to get back to the centrality of the cross, get back to the joy of our salvation, get back to what we were called to in the first place. I know you would love this quote, and you probably quote it better than I do, David Livingston. And, you know, I've been to, uh, to Livingston, Zambia, and named after David Livingston, the great uh, uh, missionary. And, uh, and yet he would say things like this. He would say, why is it when an earthly king commissions us, we consider it an honor? But when the heavenly king commissions us, we call it a sacrifice. So often we begin to think that we're making a sacrifice for God, but the reality is it's a privilege of his calling. And we're living in a time where we have to learn to steward and not hoard these things that God has given us. So revival comes by choice or by consequence or circumstance. And I believe we're in a moment where it's still where we have a choice to make as the church to get back to the centrality of the cross, the presence of God in worshiping him and coming out of that holy place, not according to division, but ready to share our faith outdoors. If God's taking us outdoors, we need, you know, Sean Foyt here and others are doing outdoor in the midst of the most difficult situations in Minneapolis and across the country. The church has gone outside worshiping. That is an external expression of the church coming together black, white, brown, red, and yellow, worshiping together, and the world is recognizing that we have something they don't have, that all peoples can gather in the mountain of the Lord, and we put aside our weapons of warfare against each other for harvesting tools together. When they see that, the world will see that we're one, and they're going to begin to receive the message that we want to bring. You know, um, this centrality of the cross, there are people listening to this who are from Iran, they're Malaysia, they are China. We know for a fact there are people listening to this. And one of them said to me last week or something when I had a call with one of them, they said, you know, Daphne, we believe that next year is the year we really have to be prepared to die for the gospel and, and physical death for the gospel. And then we're talking to people the other side of the world and the States in the UK and they're talking about, well, will we be able to meet together again? What What is our future look like as a church? And yet whether you're talking east or whether you're talking west, north or south, there is one answer. It's the centrality of the cross. Absolutely. It is Jesus. If we die, we die for him. If we, we are the body of Christ, whatever we're going to look like in the future, it needs to look like him and who he created us to be. So across the world, wherever you're listening, it's still yeah. the centrality of the and, cross. And one of the things which has been sad to see uh, are some of the very prominent Christian leaders during this time, especially, let's say, in America during the whole race, the rise of the race issue, which is going on right now, of seeing prominent leaders saying, actually, 
Now's not the time to be going out proclaiming the gospel. Now's the time to lay that down and get behind what certain movements are pushing outside the church. They have the answer. It's like this is tragic that even prominent leaders are saying, let's put the Bible down, let's put Jesus on the side and let's support what they are doing right now. It's like, no, 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 you're getting us back to front. This isn't right. Absolutely. You know, um, I was just reading something that, uh, let's see if I can find this for you here. Um, uh, here it is. Uh, uh, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army out of the UK, obviously, and, and, the, and the fact the, uh, what they would call the modern day uh, evangelical social justice movement started when the Salvation Army came to the US in the 1850s. And William Booth said, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century. Now, this is back in the 1800s. He says, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, hmm. Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. John Wesley also, a friend of mine, Jeff Kersey, is the pastor of of Mount Horb United Methodist Church in South Carolina. He uh, was the pastor of, of, of Governor Haley at the time, and then she became ambassador of the United Nations of the U.S. And he said, uh, he, gave, he sent me this quote by John Wesley because he was concerned about his own denomination, what's happening. And he said, I, and John Wesley said, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or in America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. And I'm thinking, we're, you know, we are living in that moment today. We see so many today who love the, the pats on the back, you know, and we've created, and, and forgive me for saying this, I said this the other day, and I, I say this with all due respect, but you know, sometimes, you know, in a culture of long periods of peace and prosperity and like we have it all, we think that, you know, we're rich, but we're really poor. And, uh, and I see all the blessings we've seen in the Church of America. It's been a blessing to the nations, don't get me wrong. But in the process, there was an element of almost uh, 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 of entitlement that somehow the Church of America somehow is rich. And so we can do a lot of things, but we forget that everything we have is because of what the Lord has done so we can be stewards with those things. And so I, I say, you know, we've created a bunch of thumb-sucking, bedwetting Christians. Because when it comes right down to it, you know, you're talking about our friends in Iran. I, you as well as I have worked with quite a few friends there in Iran. And uh, I had an Iranian businessman used to pay for me to be on television uh, a couple of times a week in Iran for, for, a, lot, for a couple of years. And uh, I've been on the border there, meeting with many of our friends and leaders in the church there, as well as in Vietnam and other places. And I see this authentic desire. In fact, I had one pastor from Vietnam a few years ago. Uh, I first met him in 1990. He had been in prison, in and out of prison for uh, sharing his faith. But the church kept it on growing. Even when he would put in jail, the church would grow. Young people would take on the responsibility. And I remember one day, two of his girls, he had gotten out of Vietnam to come to the U.S. for education, and they were graduating from a Bible school, Christ for the Nations, and also at Dallas Baptist University. So he and his wife found a way to walk from Vietnam into Thailand and other places, and then finally got on a plane to come to the U.S. to see their daughters. 
they came to my office and the father and the mother, and they said to me why they came. They wanted to see their daughters, but they had to head back to Vietnam. I said, wait a minute. If you're here together and your daughters are here, you don't need to go back. You know when you go back, you're going to be arrested again. And he looked at me and he said, look, if I don't go back, the church will become discouraged and will not grow. But when I, when I go back, even if I'm arrested, the church will grow. And I thought about what the Apostle Paul said, to, 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 to die is gain, to live is, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's like, it's oh my goodness, you know, it's like here it is living out the gospel right here. They don't have to go back, but rather than choosing the pleasures of, of Egypt, so to speak, they were willing to go back to suffer with their own people so the church would grow. That to me is that, that distinction of focusing on the eternity versus focusing on the temporal. You know, Leonard Ramhill wrote me a note many years ago, and it said, my dearest brother Doug, let others live on the raw edge or the cutting edge. You and I should live on the edge of eternity. And the reality is today, many are on the edge of eternity. And while we're sitting back in our, our, our sea our, of our beach of comfort and apathy, there are many still shipwrecked in the sea of despair. It's our moment to get out there. It's our moment to shine. It's our moment to bring the peace in the midst of the storm. Joe, yeah. your story then about him going back to Vietnam reminds me, I'm going to name drop now, right? I'm about to name drop. I was just a young teenager and I travelled with Richard Birnbrandt when he came out. She was the bodyguard. <laughs> I, I travelled, I mean, I was this little, they put me, anyway, there's my name drop. But I remember sitting in a, a youth meeting and it was just in a small British old church and we were sitting with these young people and he turned and said this. He said, I would rather be back in prison than live amongst the apathy I see here. Wow. I have wow. never forgotten that. Wow. I would rather be back in prison than sit, live amongst the apathy that I see here. And I think, dear God, why do we have to be persecuted to fall in love with Jesus? Why does God have to send this on the earth for his people to love him? I mean, it's just, it makes my heart sad that we can't just love him and, and focus on him anyway. But that's how we are and that's where we are and we're going to fall more in love with him. I have to, you cannot press my buttons, Doug, and then just move on by. Because <laughs> you just did that and... and <laughs> You can't do it. So when you mention Moses and Joshua and, and the oh, yeah. multi-generational, I have to tell you this funny story. I was in Brazil on the top of a building. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the PARS network in, in Brazil and Abe Huber and people like that. But anyway, he's a fiery he's a fiery preacher, but he's a fiery interpreter. So I was standing up there and they were televising all over the city. And, and I said... And many call this the Joshua generation to enter the land. And he said, and many call this the Joshua generation to yeah, enter really the land. Yeah, really giving it yeah. all his, and I all said, his but, passion. But I say, no, no, no. And he stopped and he looked at me like, and he goes, you say no, no, no. Right. <laughs> I said, I say no, no, no. I said, I will not model this generation on something that went wrong. This is the time for Moses to enter the land with Joshua. It is not the time to say they are the Joshua generation and we sit back. Well, he looked very relieved at that point. <laughs> but but that, is, that is 
part of the mission we're on. Let's do this together this time and let's have a faithful Moses generation to enter with Joshua. Yeah. Taking that a bit further, I was talking to a young man this morning from Malaysia and I said to him, you know, I don't know whether you had a Moses, but you are now in a land where the walls have fallen down, where there's been a war or just beating around with the trumpets. People might have been killed when all the walls fell down. You don't know where to go. It's a strange land. And you now have to lead your people in this. And, and, and I thought as I was speaking to him, Joshua remembered the words of Moses. He kept saying, as Moses said, as Moses said, but that couldn't be all. Joshua had to have a word for his generation in the land. He had to remember Moses and do it, but he had to too. And I really believe that the time we're in, in, in the place where we're at now, is we need a people to rise up who are not just repeating the message that they've given for years and years, Yes, the centrality of the cross goes on and messages like that. But we have to have a word in season for the yeah. time we're in and the time we're going to. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. You know, I think that, that in fact, I love what you just said about the Joshua. No, no, no. Because I really feel like it's a, if it's a multi-generational connection, then it's a prophetic generation together. And, you know, when you think about God's promises or yes and amen, if we look at historically, Every promise he gave throughout the Old Testament, the early church, and throughout history, I believe we're coming into a culmination moment. So it's not just Joshua or John the Baptist or forerunners. It's not it's the Esthers, the Deborahs. All of those promises God has given being culminated into a synergistic moment for God to raise up a prophetic generation, a multi-generational uh, prophetic generation preparing the way not this time as one voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord, but a generation coming together, preparing for the coming of the Lord and the ultimate in gathering that God's going to bring. When I, when I think about uh, the, the generation of, you know, even John the Baptist as a forerunner, and I look at where we are today, we need this generational, multi-generational connection for us to take the dreams and visions, the passions and wisdom of generations together in this culmination moment of all God's word that has been promised to his church come to this moment so we can together prepare the way for a people for the coming of the Lord with a message of consecration, commitment with action. It really isn't about just, you know, I remember I heard a young Cho one time when he came to visit was speaking at a pastor's gathering and somebody said to him, uh, how did you uh, do this to build a, a church, one of the largest church in the world at the time, and he just simply got real quiet. And I can do this because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of Asian descent. He just had his eyes closed. He looked up for a moment. His eyes opened up and he said, you pray and then you obey. <laughs> and then he just, that's all he said. And they go, no, no, what did you do? He goes, you pray and then you obey. Too often we're looking for the systems and, and institutions of men to lead us where only the presence of God can take us. Our personal giftings, our personal, uh, you know, technical giftings, our, our knowledge, our intellect, they can take us so far. But without the presence of God, we're limited. We need the presence of God in a way today like never before so we can walk into the destiny that God has already spoken over this generation and where we're going to take this generation into the presence of God. Totally. I, I can't. I mean, it. it... 
I have all my life, I mean, and I mean all my life, I have never known a moment where I haven't, the, the return of the king hasn't been on my radar. Yeah. And literally, I mean, I have crazy stories about what I thought about it when I was younger, but, but that's okay. It's always been on my radar that, that Jesus is returning. Sadly, it's just not on many people's, lots of people's radar. But I, I sometimes say this, I say, I feel like I'm on Mount Carmel. And you've been there, we've been there many times. And I said, Elijah looked out and he said, you see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And I really believe that at this moment in my life, like I have not before, I look out and I see the cloud of his return. Mm. I see it, Doug. I see the cloud of his return. And I think you know, we have to seize this moment. We're not going to get this moment again. Uh, and we may be in for a very rocky road ahead of us, and I'm sure we're going to be in for This is just a bump in the road compared with what's coming. But if we don't keep our eyes on that cloud and, and look for and hasten the day of his return, what are we about? What are we about? I, I don't. I just don't understand what we're about. If we if we remove Jesus and the cross and all He paid for us in order that we can welcome Him as our coming King and we can be His bridegroom, what what are we doing? I just I I for one don't know. Well, sadly, you know, I think we've all experienced this, and I guess it's a challenge for all of us at times. When we become acceptable to the culture, hmm. rather than influencing the culture with the culture of the kingdom, yeah. it's easy for us to compromise our convictions to the point that we begin to justify with excuses what only comes by justification by faith. I, I know I just said a lot, but let me kind of break that down a little bit. Yeah. When we as the church, especially in the Western culture, we have this linear way of thinking. And we think everything has to be put in a box, one, two, three, four, A, B, C, D. When God is doing multifaceted things at multiple layers at the same time, because he's an omnipresent, omnipotent, he's infinite, he can do all these things in a moment that is far beyond what we can ever even comprehend in our human comprehension. I think in a moment, God could do something so significant that no man or woman could take glory. Nobody puts their fingerprint on it. God's about to do something that only he can do, and we all will recognize it's him. The challenge is, in our Western culture at times, and nothing against it, I'm, I'm, I'm a beneficiary. Being born in Japan, mother was Japanese, I'm a beneficiary of the freedoms, liberties, and so on, and, and I know this is where God has called me to pray for peace and bless the nation in which I dwell. And, uh, but I also recognize that God transcends boundaries. And that God is speaking to our generation. This is our moment to take the gospel into the generation at every level. It's a multifaceted moment. But what happens is when, when we begin to become acceptable to the culture around us, the worldly culture, then we begin to water down the message. And we have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Mm. So that we no longer are, we don't want to say Jesus we want to say God, or we don't want to say, uh, we don't want to speak scripture because it doesn't fit in the, in the politically correct things to say. And we begin to change scripture to help us feel more acceptable into the culture. Rather than recognizing we don't have to be like the world to win the world, 
We have to be like Christ, and he who is high lifted up will bring people to himself if we represent him as ambassadors for Christ. We see, as you know, in the book of Acts, in the Acts model, that when they were told, you can do whatever you want, say whatever you want, just don't say that name, Jesus. Well, we're in that same time frame now where people don't want to hear the name of Jesus, but you can't have salvation in or through the church to the culture without Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus. And, we, and if we're afraid to speak his name and to represent who he is, how then can we change the culture or bring the manifest presence and power of God to the culture to bring any lasting change or reform? Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we if we are not bold in this moment well I think to be bold in this moment is to prepare ourselves to have to be bolder down the line and, and to seize this moment to get out there and to seize this moment and you know like I said earlier there are people listening to this who are already seizing the moment even unto death. Yes. And um and I, I and I honour them, those that are listening, and I honour them for for going before us and and for showing us the way. Not easy, but I honour them for going that path. And and I just pray. I pray for myself. I pray for all of us that that we will use this time, as it were, to flex our muscles. I mean, I've seen you in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised who's watching you in that gym. I've seen you in that gym, and you're flexing your muscles and you're counting down. But this is the time for us to do that, isn't it? Well, for so often, it's always, it's been a mindset that people around the world have America or England come to teach them how to do things. And really, in this season, if there was ever a time, uh, one, I'm not necessarily sure that I even agree with that anyway, but uh, if there was ever a time for places like America and England, it's now to learn from these other countries from the Middle East out in Asia where they've been going through intense persecution. And in England, America, we aren't in that now. We're in, in increasing pressure. But we really should be looking at our brothers and sisters around the world who've gone through this stuff and learning from them during this season. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier Indonesia and Malaysia as well. And we all have friends there. I remember in 19... Uh, 97 or 98 when I first went to Indonesia with a group of friends of mine from there and during the Asian economic collapse and as you know it's considered the largest Muslim country in the world and I remember during the Asian collapse when many churches were being burned down and, and vandalized and everybody looks for a scapegoat and people are afraid of what they don't understand and so when I was asked to come I just said look if I'm coming let's do something out of the norm I don't want to just come to blow in, blow up and blow out and do a crusade and have a few thousand people. And uh, they end up having 30,000 people. But we ended up having feeding centers, free lunch from the Lord, because so many had lost their jobs. At that time, there was just over 200 million people in, in Indonesia in the population. Over 100 million were below the poverty line because of the Asian economic collapse. And so out of frustration and fear, the church can respond in the same spirit or an opposite spirit. So we ended up doing feeding centers, uh, free lunch from the Lord, even to those who had persecuted the church. Fast forward, I won't get into the whole story, but later, a few months later, they did like 1,500 feeding centers after we left and it began to open the hearts of even the community leaders and even those from other religions who normally uh, would not even have any relationship with pastors or church people and how it's begun to change things. And through that, one of the largest 
Christian intercessory movements in the world has now come out of Indonesia, where, as you know, uh, I think there's at least uh, over 2 million or more Christians that pray every day for the church in America and the UK and other places that we would be awakened so we can help go and take the gospel out. Other churches in Nigeria and others are praying for all of us. So I totally agree. We have so much to learn from them that in the midst of the most difficult of situations and circumstances, the most adverse situations, God has turned things around when the church takes right posture in humility. He's given his authority to them. And as they begin to pray and to seek God, now God has given them favor with their government leaders. There's a great movement in Indonesia that's touching nations of the world. It's amazing when the church in Vietnam, touching nations of the world now, the Church of China, Church of Iran is influencing the world. There are so many other most adverse circumstances. Those churches who have come to that place of posture in the midst of their own need have learned to pray and to bless out. The rest of us have become beneficiaries from that. Let me just say, you know, I remember in, in Vietnam and Indonesia, but my first time to Vietnam uh, and being in a room with um, 125 or so underground church leaders in a room with no furniture, just one little box for a seat. And they put me on that box and said, we want you to share with us what God has given you. I said, oh no, I come from Laodicea. Uh, you need to be speaking to me. And I didn't know what to say, so I just washed their feet for the next few hours. And it was in that moment, God did something so deep in me that God broke my heart from my own country from this place where these pastors had been fasting and praying for two and three weeks in a room with just liquid. And now asking me to minister to them, I said, no, you need to minister to me. And in that moment, God did something so divine that literally changed the directory, directory and, the, um, uh, and, and the course of ministry, the impact of my life from that moment where I just, I didn't want to minister in Laodicea. I, I was wrecked, but God did a work in me there even to love my own country as I'm reaching out to many other nations. Indonesia, the same. I heard of a young man in a village in a place called Mount Bromo. He led his whole village to the Lord after he came to Christ and went back to that village. I wanted to go meet this person. So we actually got on a plane, flew down to this one area, uh, drove in two vans, went to this mountain, climbed up the mountain into the village, and, uh, and with no electricity, I found this young man, and all I wanted to do was just wash his feet. And he said, why would you come across the oceans to come wash my feet? Uh, you don't know me. I said, look, you've led your whole village to the Lord. I've not led my whole city to the Lord. I want what you have. When we learn to wash the feet of others, learn to sit at the feet of others, God does something in us that then leverages us to take the stewardship he's given to us to reach more people for the gospel. Well, I have mm -hmm. a similar story, similar, not exactly the same. I was in... Malaysia, speaking to an underground Iranian church there. And we were speaking on Mordecai and Esther, because, just throw it out there, every model of discipleship in the Bible is generational. So we take those different models. And how more we believe the book of um, Esther should actually be the book of Mordecai, and how he led the way, how he put his life on the line before he's made that very serious, not a flippant statement to Esther, you were born for such a time as this. I have led the way. I put my life on the line. And now I'm asking you to. 
Well, I we'd spoken this in this church and the pastor came to me and said, Daphne, will you pray for this young man? And I don't, you weren't with me, were you? I wasn't on that trip. No. I was somewhere else. And he looked very much like Andrew. He was tall and the rest of it. And I said, no, he needs to pray for me. You know, not not me pray for him. And this man looked at me and, and he looked at me and he just said, Daphne, he needs a mother mm. to pray for him and send him. Well, Doug, that moment did something in me nothing else could because Mordecai is one of my biblical heroes. I mean, he, he is a big on my biblical heroes. And I stood in that moment praying for this young man and telling him, who's going back maybe to die, I said, you were born for such a time as this. And as I stood there, I thought, I have become my biblical hero. I have a moment to stand in this place that Mordecai did and and to speak this over this young man and look at him in those eyes. And that changed something in me that I I could never put into words. Never put into words. That's a great word, you know, and you'll you'll appreciate this. The first time I was actually went back to minister in Japan was after the Kobe earthquake. I was born there, left when I was three, went back in high school years for three years and and hadn't been back there for quite a few years, and and uh, I needed an interpreter. Here I am, born in Japan, forgot how to speak Japanese. My interpreter the whole time was uh, from Iran, and he mm. could not go back. He become a Christian at, at a church in Yokohama, uh, Japan. Became my interpreter, traveled with me everywhere, and it was the funniest thing. We be before Japanese, and I did. I said the right things with the right vernacular uh, and a little <laughs> bit of Japanese. I remembered. I did the bowing. And then I, then they'd start talking to me in Japanese. Go, uh, Chotomate, excuse me. Uh, that's, uh, I, I'm sorry. That's all I know. <laughs> and then they'd look at him, and he's doing all the interpreting. He's a Persian Iranian, and all of a sudden they're looking at him and looking at me. And there's a term in Japanese called bikurishita, means I don't get this. This is this is surprising. Here's the Japanese that does not speak Japanese, and we're looking at this other person who's <laughs> speaking Japanese. So, but it, and so all he wanted from me, after all that. He said, Doug, I don't have, you know, I can't go back to my country at the time. And he said, would you send me, if you can find me, a Bible that, that is in Persian? So I came home to, to my city in Houston. I ordered a, a Persian Bible in Farsi, and I sent it to him. That was like the big gift for him. And so I, I, just, I, I just believe that out of the most adverse places, as you even shared, Daphne, and, and Andrew, you've been sharing, and this is your lifestyle and everything you guys have been doing. But out of Iran, out of China, out of, out of Indonesia, out of Malaysia, out of so many parts of the world, we're seeing those who've lived through persecution and adversity that have been blessing the rest of us in ways they may never. I want to encourage those mm-hmm. that, are, that you're ministering to right now in all these different countries. We need your voice. We need you to be yeah. strong because we are learning from you. Right. And we're taking what your heart cries and what you've been doing as an example, a prophetic drama. Your very life experience is becoming a message of a larger context that we are learning from. We're hearing, we're learning. And just pray for us that we can take that same message that you have with boldness to the realms of relationships that God's given us. So, and we pray for you as well. Amen. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Please pass our love on to the family and hopefully 
this whole situation we're going through right now finishes soon so we can get back on a plane and, and maybe even come out and, and catch up with you face to face. So thank, thank you, you so much. That would be great to see you guys again. Bless you all. Thank you for listening. If this impacted you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or another podcast platform.